Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Wednesday, June 9th, 2021. And we are live. Hope everybody's doing well. Calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you ever have a question or comment. So we've heard a lot about uh, award-winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones being denied a tenureship at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in the journalism department. She's already a professor there, but she applied for tenureship, and she was denied that, and the, uh, the board succumbed to pressure from, conservat- from conservatives because of who are who are against and protesting against the 1619 project from the New York Times that she spearheaded. So we know there's been attacks against the 1619 project, which which focuses on reframing uh, our understanding of the origins of this country centered around slavery. We know that uh, we've been talking here about the attacks on critical race theory and uh, from from the conservatives and uh, you have about uh, now it's about 20 states that have passed laws dealing with uh, critical race theory, attacking critical race theory on very uh, on various levels, but also attacking the 1619 project, banning it from being taught in the schools. So we see this attack taking place. Well, now the. Uh, University of uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill has lost out on a um, a well-renowned African American female chemist uh, named Dr. Lisa Johnson. Dr. Lisa Johnson, uh, who so we're going to talk about this story here, okay? Um, and then. June 9th, 1963, June 9th, 1963, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer was dragged off of a bus and beaten, okay? On June 9th, 1963, while returning from a voter registration workshop in South Carolina, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer was arrested and beaten in Winona, Mississippi, after sitting at a white-only lunch counter. Uh, so we're going to talk some about uh, that as well in uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. That happened June 9th, uh, 1963. Okay, so on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now it's correct wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself. What you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you can control the compass of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We deal with current events and history, politics education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word KEMET, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828, 
sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828, and sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Sign up for our email newsletter there as well. I want to remind you, you can still register for the online course that I teach on uh, Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. This is a nine-week, well, now it's ten weeks. I had to add an additional week because we're going to have Dr. David M. Hotep speak to the class. Uh, this is a ten-week online course that I teach. We deal with thousands of years of history, and we deal with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade uh, taking place. Uh, Saturday, June 12th, our guest speaker is going to be Dr. David M. Hotep, author of the book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. And he's going to talk about the premise of his book. He'll deal with uh, this book right here. He'll deal with the archaeological evidence, uh, thoroughly documenting an African presence in this country that we call the United States of America, going back at least 51,700 years ago. Uh, we And he'll talk, we'll talk about his new book as well. It's coming out in about a month or so. We just posted the information here, uh, posted the link here. You can register for that. It's also at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, since we are about halfway through the class, the class is about 54% off, so it's on sale $60, regularly $130. And we do the class live, but all the, all the uh, sessions are recorded. They're archived, so you can go back and watch them over and over again. Okay, so I want to get into um, this first story here. And we, we've we heard a lot uh, about this. Uh, I know they talked about it on Roland Martin Unfiltered. They, they talked about it on um, MSNBC. So this goes back to uh, late May, late May 2021. Uh, NBC News has an article here uh, dealing with uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, denying tenureship to um, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Now, this is uh, her alma mater also. OK, she graduated from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. But there's an article from uh, May 20th, uh, 2021. UNC withholds tenure for 1619 Project journalist after conservative backlash. UNC withholds tenure for 1619 Project journalist after conservative backlash. And once again, we see these attacks all across the board. They're not isolated. We see we we, we see uh, the attack being telegraphed in the uh, rebuttal speech, in the rebuttal speech that Senator Tim Scott delivered on um, Wednesday, April 28th, the rebuttal speech to uh, the joint, to the speech that uh, Joe Biden delivered to a joint session of Congress. And, you know, we talked about that speech numerous times here on this show, and we broke it down because people don't understand uh, many people don't understand the speech. It was a rebuttal. It's the, it's the, 
it was the rebuttal speech on behalf of the GOP, on behalf of the Republicans. But if you go through and analyze the 15 minute speech that Tim Scott delivered, it shows you the ideology and the policies of the GOP and it shows you what's coming. And we've seen since April 28th, we've seen a number of states pass laws banning the teaching of critical race theory, attacking the 1619 project as well, okay? Uh, we see different variations of this. Now it's about 20 states. So if we look at this article here from uh, NBC News, uh, UNC withholds tenure for 1619 Project journalists after conservative backlash. Uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's journalism school is not offering Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Pulitzer Prize winning creator of the New York Times 1619 Project, a tenured professorship after facing pressure from conservatives, after facing pressure from conservatives. So this is, even though they said that she did not have enough classroom time, enough teaching time in the classroom, when you research this, experts are saying, well, wait a second, there have been other people that have received tenureship and didn't have as much uh, 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 classroom time as is usually required or something like this. But she is an award-winning journalist. Now, NC Policy Watch first reported that the uh, UNC Chapel Hill's board of trustees had decided not to uh, approve tenure for Nicole Hannah-Jones at the Hussman School of Journalism and Media. According to the 19th, okay, uh, according to the publication the 19th, she is the first person in this role at UNC Chapel Hill to be denied tenure by the board. According to the 19th, she is the first person in this role at UNC Chapel Hill to be denied tenure uh, to be denied tenure by the board. Now, the university announced last month in uh, April, uh, they announced in April 2021 that Nicole Hannah-Jones would join the school as the night chair in race and investigative journalism in July. Now, conservatives quickly condemned the university's decision to offer Nicole Hannah-Jones the tenure track position. Um, one trustee re reportedly told uh, NC Policy Watch, quote, this is a very political thing. This is a very political thing. The university, quote, the university and the board of trustees and the board of governors and the legislature have all been getting pressure since this thing was first announced last month. There have been people writing letters and making calls for and against. But I will leave it to you, which is carrying more weight, end quote. I will leave it to you, which is carrying more weight. Now, a spokesperson for the journalism school, uh, whose name is Kyle York, confirmed to NBC News that the board did not act 
on the Cole Hannah-Jones tenure package. The board met on Wednesday, this back in late May, and was expected to meet again on Thursday, he said. The Cole Hannah-Jones at the time of this writing was not immediately, uh, uh, had not immediately uh, responded to a request for comment, okay? Now, Nicole Hannah-Jones is a renowned award, renowned award-winning journalist and winner of a MacArthur Fellowship known as a Genius Grant in 2017. She led the 2019 New York Times 1619 Project. We'll continue this to the other side of the break, and we'll talk about a new development here because UNC has lost out on a very brilliant African-American uh, chemist uh, behind this as well. You listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m., the Superstation of Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. 910, the Superstation, Detroit's only African-American talk radio. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Wednesday, June 9th, 2021, and we are live. All right, everybody, share this broadcast on social media platforms. Invite your friends to tune in also. Um, I want to remind you, I will be in Atlanta uh, Friday, June 18th through Sunday, June 20th for the ninth annual Juneteenth. Uh, uh, parade and music festival, ninth annual Juneteenth parade and music festival. Uh, Rest of Development will be performing this year. The one of the one of the headliners. Uh, I'll be speaking there uh, Saturday, uh, June nineteenth, and Sunday, June twentieth, three p.m. to four p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the Amphitheater. I'll also have a vendor booth there all three days. So visit JuneteenthATL.com, JuneteenthATL.com for more information. Uh, this is uh, will be held at Centennial Olympic Park, Centennial Olympic Park. It's a free event. It's a, it's a good family-oriented environment. Uh, they usually have about 100 to 130 vendors there as well, African-American vendors, Caribbean vendors, African vendors. Uh, so visit the website JuneteenthATL.com for more information. And information about the parade. The parade is uh, on Saturday, usually on Saturday. The parade parade starts at 12 noon on Auburn Avenue. So it's going to be a fantastic uh, time. All right. So I want to uh, go back to this topic we were dealing with, dealing with Nicole Hannah-Jones and then also Dr. Lisa Jones, no relation. Dr. Lisa Jones, who has turned down a uh, professorship at UNC behind the mistreatment of uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. So there was a, uh, let's do this, there was some background information. Uh, I want to go to clip one, uh, Shakita from uh, Black News Channel. We're going to go to that in just a second. Uh, well, actually, I'm sorry, clip two. We'll go to clip two, uh, Dr. Mark Lamont Hill. Here's some more background information here. Uh, Dr. Mark Lamont Hill um, interviewed uh, Dr. Jelani Cobb, who's a staff writer for The New Yorker and a professor at Columbia, uh, Columbia's Journalism School, about uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones being denied tenureship. Okay, now she's a Pulitzer Prize winner. She's more than qualified to uh, be a tenured professor at this school or any other school, basically in the journalism school, not, not the history department, because the, the, the there are some 
problems with the 1619 project. We talked about that before. Doesn't mean you can't use parts of it, you know, to teach history. But she she's not a professor in the history department. She's in the journalism department, so she's more than qualified. And UNC is also her alma mater as well. Um, conservatives expressed outrage after the school announced that they were bringing Nicole Hannah-Jones on. Uh, quote, this is a political reaction that she created. Uh, this is a political reaction that she created the 1619 Project, Dr. Jelani Cobb said. The idea that racism is not central to the American society, the American establishment is absurd, end quote. Let's go to this clip, Shakita. Clip number two, take it off mute. To follow the battle brewing at the University of North Carolina, where Pulitzer Prize winning MacArthur genius Nicole Hannah Jones of the New York Times 1619 Project has just been denied a tenure position by the school's board, despite approval from faculty and the tenure committee. The news has led to an outpouring of support for Hannah Jones, who joins a growing list of accomplished black scholars and black public figures attacked by the right. This is a fascinating moment. Just a few months ago, we saw letters written by right-wingers talking about cancel culture, how they couldn't take cancel culture, that we can't just cancel people because of their beliefs, that whenever people say things that are wrong or that are not politically correct or that make people uneasy, that the left just cancels them. And what many of us on the left said at the time was that that's simply untrue. That first of all, the issue here isn't canceling people, it's holding them accountable. And every time someone is held accountable, it doesn't mean that we're canceling them. But the other side of the equation was that many people on the right, the very people who are decrying cancel culture, are quick to shut something down when it doesn't cohere with their ideological positions, whether it was in the 80s with the mall majority, whether those people trying to stop rap music, whether those people trying to cancel the Teletubbies, literally, whether it's people writing letters, whether it's people trying to get people fired from cable news networks and universities for their positions on the Middle East, whether it's talking about trying to get teachers fired or whether it's talking about what we see here with Nicole Hannah-Jones. This is a stunning development, and many people we're up in arms about it. And one of those people was my next guest. His name is William Jelani Cobb. He is a professor at Columbia Journalism School. He's also a staff writer at The New Yorker. And he was one of the first people to tweet and respond to what happened to Nicole Hannah Jones. Uh, Jelani, good to see you, man. Good to see you. Help me understand this. Nicole Hannah Jones is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, a MacArthur Genius Award winner one of the most celebrated writers, certainly the last couple of years, certainly as a journalist, how, she, let me say one more thing. She was recruited for a job, hired for a job, approved by the faculty, approved by the dean. How unusual is it that something like this would happen? Well, the first is that this is extremely unusual. Uh, you, you and I have both been around academic, academia long enough to understand how these uh, commissions work. Uh, that if your department and your tenure committee uh, is in favor of you being tenured and the uh, president, uh, rather the dean, 
uh, and chair of your department are in favor, then it generally is a done deal. Uh, I've never in my academic experience seen or even heard of a case where the Board of Trustees then intervened and effectively overrules the decisions that have been made at every other level of university governance. Uh, so one, it's but just to, to talk about the list of Nicole Hannah Jones' qualifications, she has a MacArthur Award. She has a Pulitzer Prize. She has two Polk Awards. She has a Peabody Award. And she has three National Magazine Awards. That's one person. That would be an impressive haul if we were talking about an entire department. And so there's likely no one who came up for tenure with equal representation in terms of uh, respect and awards within their professional field. Uh, and so what tenure basically depends on is where you stand in comparison to other people in your field. Uh, she is likely the most moral, the most awarded journalist in her age category and her generation. Uh, so it's absurd and this is a blatant intrusion into academic freedom and an intrusion into freedom of the press. So this is, this is fascinating because oftentimes when people do get denied tenure in academia, especially black folk, there's always this kind of nebulous thing where, you know, we don't know if they were a good citizen or not, or we don't know if you have enough of this or enough of that. And there's always a kind of plausible deniability. But as you pointed out, she may be the most decorated job applicant in a journalism school we've seen in a very long time. So, but the university isn't pretending that it's about her qualifications. They're, they're, they're fairly explicit, or, or, or that no one's even, no one at the board level of the Board of Trustees is pretending that this is about her lack of qualification, right? No, no, not at all. And if you uh, watch the kind of right-wing media in response to it, they were very overt. Uh, they said the tenure denied to 1619 Project founder. Uh, and so this is a political uh, reaction uh, to the fact that she created the 1619 Project and more fundamentally an attack upon her for arguing, as the 1619 Project does uh, persuasively, about the centrality of race and racism in the development and establishment of the United States. Uh, that's not really a controversial position, except when we're talking about uh, right-wing reactionaries who are also, when they're not uh, attacking the 1519 Project, uh, uh, minimizing and defending the people uh, who were attempting to lynch the vice president on January 6th. Uh, and so uh, it, it doesn't hold up to any sort of professional or, or scholarly or academic uh, standard. What we're left with is simple base politics. You talked about how the 1619 Project points to the kind of centrality. The right go nuts about critical race theory, too. We see legislation uh, against critical race theory. I had a guest on here a, a couple of weeks ago who said that if he's elected governor of Georgia, he's going to ban critical race theory on his first day in office, even though he didn't know what it was. What's going on in the country right now that gets us to this place? Well, I mean, it's the, the spirit of Trump, uh, effectively. Uh, if you don't know what it is, it must be evil also. It's the kind of place where ignorance uh, <laughs> operates and the rich of knowledge usually is. Uh, it's like that old joke saying, you know, I don't know what those words mean, but I must take it to mean you're insulting me. Uh, and so uh, critical race theory uh, is, is decades old. You know, the founding scholars uh, in this field are... Near uh, retirement, some of them. 
Uh, and so it's, it's not, I mean, I guess it, it takes a while for people to get on, get on to ideas. But this is not some sort of novel uh, academic development. Uh, it is a well-entrenched and well-established uh, part of the uh, intellectual and theoretical uh, underpinnings of now this point multiple fields. We started out in law schools that have been applied to lots of different ideas as it relates to understanding how our society works. Uh, and so uh, the other point of it is that the, the idea that racism is not central to the American uh, society, American establishment, is absurd. But it also is uh, the logical extension of the kind of denial we see with uh, kind of the efforts to refurbish the Confederacy. Uh, to talk uh, euphemistically about the campaigns to maintain slavery in the United States and say it was about this uh, constitutional abstraction called state rights. Uh, and in order to absolve the United States of its racial sin, you then have to create this alternate fantasy uh, version of the past, uh, what W.E.B. Du Bois referred to as the propaganda of history. Uh, and so it has no bearing on what actually happened in the past, it's just a version of history that is politically useful for maintenance of white supremacy. Hey, Paul, pause it right there for me, Shakita. Pause it right there. Uh, back that up about a minute. Back it up about a minute. Okay, so this is Dr. Jelani Cobb, who's also a historian. He's a journalist and a historian. Professor at the uh, Columbia's Journalism School. So he's going through, that. now this clip is from May 20th, uh, Black News Channel, Dr. Mark Lamont Hill, uh, Dr. Mark Lamont Hill show on the Black News Channel. So they're going through dissecting this whole thing. And you saw the article that I had up. We've talked about a number of times before uh, dealing with uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, who uh, and, and I'm not going to beat up on him because his uh, grandfather's on 14 slaves collectively and uh, 12 of them were female. I'm not going to beat up on him because of that. Um, but you saw that it was a letter that sick that um three dozen um they, they, that uh, uh um you had about thirty six Republicans who sent to uh the new Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, they sent a letter demanding that schools that teach the sixteen nineteen project not be eligible for grant programs, okay? Uh, this is an article here from uh, uh, CNN. We've talked about this before on the show. Uh, McConnell sends letter to Education Secretary demanding removal of the 1619 project from federal grant programs. Okay, uh, and let me pull this article back up here. So we see this whole attack. Now, what Dr. Jelani Cobb is talking about is dealing with revisionist history. This ties into the whole lost cause. Uh, uh, the whole lost cause revisionist history of the Civil War and of the Confederacy and rewriting history saying that the Confederacy, uh, they separate uh, from the Union because of states' rights, no, because of slavery. They wanted to maintain slavery. And when you read their statements of secession, they make it clear. They talk about how slavery was central to their way of life. So you had conservatives on UNC's board who are blocking the tenureship of Nicole Hannah-Jones. But this is much bigger than an African-American woman uh, having a job at 
a white institution. This deals with this whole culture war that's taking place and shutting down of uh, history that contradicts what a lot of white people want to hear. Okay, th th that's what this ties into. So if we look at this article here from CNN.com, McConnell sends letter to education secretary demanding removal of the 1619 project from federal grant programs. Uh, uh, Senate uh, Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell is wading into the cultural wars Friday morning. Now, this article is from uh, Friday, April 30th, 2021. In a letter obtained by CNN, the Republican leader asked Education Secretary Miguel Cardona to abandon curriculum in American schools that McConnell argues tells a revisionist history of America's founding. McConnell claims these programs, such as the 1619 Project, who Donald Trump waged a war against, the traitor-in-chief, Benedict Donald, he waged, waged a war against the 1619 Project when he was in office. McConnell claims these programs, such as the New York Times 1619 Project, reorient the view of American history, quote, away from their intended purposes toward a politicized and divisive agenda, end quote. What's the, what's the divisive agenda? They don't want to deal with the history of slavery. That's the problem. They don't want to deal with white supremacy and racism and systemic racism. Because you have many Republicans like um, uh, Lindsey Graham of, of South Carolina who are saying systemic racism don't exist. And then when you put policies in place to address, to address decades of systemic racism, like the $4 billion of loan forgiveness for African-American farmers and Latino farmers and Asian-American farmers that's in the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan that no Republicans in the House or the Senate voted for. When you do things like that, because African-American farmers have faced decades of discrimination from the federal government and the U.S. Department of Agriculture and have lost 92% of their land, over the past 100 years, about 12 million acres of land. When you put policies in place to deal with a history of racism, then you have many Republicans that call the policies racist. Not the past 100 years of racism and discrimination. They don't focus on that. They call they 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 call the policies that you put in place racist. The 1619 project has become a hot button issue for conservatives across America, and politicians have fought efforts by school districts to make it part of history, uh, to make it a part of history curriculum in public school districts. The project launched by the New York Times in 2019, 400th year anniversary of August 20th, 1619, reframes American history around the date of August 1619 when the first slave ship arrived on America's shores. Now, that's the that's the first slave ship coming into the British colonies because the Spanish had already were already bringing Africans into the territory we call South Carolina in 1526. That's 93 years before 1619. The Spanish were already doing that because the Spanish were in this land before uh, the, the British get here. And we know the Spanish were the second ones involved in the transatlantic slave trade right, right behind the uh, Portuguese. The Portuguese are the first ones involved in 1441 going into Mauritania. The Spanish are right be behind them. The English get involved in the transatlantic slave trade later. And then we know the Spanish are here. 
the Dutch are here. This is how you get the um, the colony of New Amsterdam. And, and the colony of New Amsterdam becomes the British colony of New York. So we know that they're all here in this land. But of course, since we were familiar with Dr. David M. Hotel's book, The First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence, we know African people were here in this land at least 51,700 years ago, even before Native Americans came into existence. These were the Khoisan, who have the oldest DNA on the planet, come from Southern Africa. They're the ancestors to the Ainu and the Twa, and they go all around the world, and we know they were, they were here as well. So, so we, we know this. So they can't run this game on us because you all listen to this show, and, you, and I put you up on game. So when they come at us with this nonsense, we know how to dissect their argument. But August 2016, 19 did happen when those um, 20, and odd, 20 and odd Africans were on the uh, White Lion pirate ship, the White Lion pirate ship. And uh, they are exchanged for food and water and supplies in uh, Virginia. It's actually Hampton, Virginia. It wasn't Jamestown. It's actually Hampton, Virginia. So the project, 1619 project, launched by the New York Times in 2019, reframes American history around the date of August 20th, 1619. Uh, when the first slave ship arrives in the British colonies, and it has launched a fierce debate over the legacy that slavery has played in shaping America, particularly as it relates to its treatment of African-Americans. Republicans have misleadingly suggested that a widespread effort. Republicans have misleadingly suggested there are widespread efforts to install the program in schools across the country. Former President Trader in Chief uh, Benedict Donald made it a rallying cry during the 2020 election. While some states like California have used the 1619 project as part of their learning plan, the federal government has not directly instructed or promoted schools to use it as it does not play a role. The federal government does not play a role in specific curriculum planning in local schools. Those decisions are largely made at the state level. OK, so a lot of this, a lot of this whining and crying that Republicans are doing that the GOP is doing over critical race theory over the 1619 project. A lot of this is much to do about nothing. This is designed to galvanize support from their dying base, from their shrinking, from their shrinking base. OK, this is designed to uh, galvanize support because they don't have any policies to really help their own people. OK, and when you look at it, they were against the. $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. They, uh, they, they, they were against cutting childhood poverty by uh, 50%. That's in the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. The, the, the uh, $2 trillion infrastructure bill, they're against that. They want a, a lot less in the infrastructure bill. They don't want to close the, uh, the $1.4 trillion um, uh, uh, Trump tax cuts. Okay, they gave mo most of the benefits to the top 1%. They don't want to close that, okay? When it comes to when it comes to police reform, all right, uh, they, they don't go as far as uh, Democrats want with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. OK, they don't go as far as they are. Now, they may be uh, I'm hearing reports that they're close to a deal between Democrats and Tim Scott in the Senate on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. We'll see what they actually come up with. OK, but the other thing is. And, if, and some people have talked about this, but even if they come to a, an agreement, 
Tim Scott representing Republicans and Karen Bass and uh, Senator Cory Booker uh, represent Democrats, even if they come to an agreement, you still need 10 Republicans in the Senate to vote for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I don't know a five who are going to vote for the bill. You need 60 votes. Who, who are the 10 Republicans that are going to vote for the bill? Besides Tim Scott, you need nine Republicans. Where are they? This is the whole thing with Joe Manchin. This is why, you know, uh, on Roland, uh, Roland Martin show today, he said Joe Manchin's full of sugar, honey, iced tea. Jo Joe Manchin is talking about for the uh, he's against the For the People Act, but he can't tell you why. He said it's not. He said it's um, it's non it, it, it's not bipartisan. No Republicans support it. Well, no Republicans supported the American Rescue Plan, but you voted for that. So when you go through and look at Joe Manchin's argument, he's lying. Joe Joe Manchin is lying, and when you look at the um, you look at the report that uh, Rachel Maddow did a couple of nights ago on the Rachel Maddow show. She goes through and shows a poll out of West Virginia. And, and the poll shows how West Virginians, regardless of um, regardless of race or regardless of whether they are Republican or Democrat, they overwhelmingly support uh, Joe Biden's policies because they know it's going to be beneficial for them. OK, if you if you look at this one right here quickly, we'll go back to this clip here. Uh, from uh, Black News Channel. But see, this is an example of how elections have consequences. Now, Joe, Joe Manson is not the only Democrat that's against the For the People Act. There's a few others. But overwhelmingly, Democrats in the Senate support the For the People Act. Okay? Now, Joe Manson said, they're all, he said there's seven Republicans that oftentimes vote with Democrats, right? But, you need, but, you, but you're going to need 10 Republicans. Seven is not 10. So even if you got seven Republicans, even if you got Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski and you got Susan Collins, even if you got seven, you're at 57. You need 60. You still lose. He's lying. So if we look at this one right quick and we'll go back to the clip. Don't worry. For the People Act, West Virginia likely voters, 81 percent of West Virginia Democrats support the For the People Act, 79 percent of independents. Uh, support the For the People Act uh, uh, of those polls. Okay, this is from this poll comes from End Citizens United and Global Strategy Group. Okay, and a ALG Research. All right, this poll was done between April 14th and April 18th, 2021, has a margin of error of four percent. Seventy-six of seventy-six percent of Republicans poll in West Virginia support the For the People Act. So when Joe Manchin says something like. Uh, you know, people in uh, West Virginia, people he represents, don't support this. You're lying. Seventy-six percent of Republicans in West Virginia polls support the For the People Act. Then, when you look at this right here, because I went through and pulled up these graphics, you look at how West Virginians now. West Virginia, keep keep in mind, see West Virginia. African Americans only make up about three or four percent of West Virginia, so I don't think Joe about uh, Joe Manchin talked to any African Americans in West Virginia. Okay, not any with any sense. When 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 he says he's not for the for the people act, then he says he'll support the the um, the uh, um, HR four, which is uh, the John Lewis bill. 
Okay, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. But you still need 10 Republicans for that. He can't name 10 Republicans that support the bill either. The, the, the John Lewis bill. If we look at this, if we look at this graphic here, West Virginia opinion on Biden proposals. They know Biden's proposals will help a whole lot of poor white people in West Virginia. They know this. Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin is, is full of sugar, honey, iced tea. He's lying. Um, when we look at the American Rescue Plan, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, that and because of the uh, because of the child tax credit, it's cutting childhood poverty. It's cutting child poverty in half. It's going to benefit a whole lot of poor white people in West Virginia that voted for Joe Manchin. Sixty-four percent of of voters in West in West Virginia poll support the American Rescue Plan. No Republicans voted for the bill. Okay, Joe Manchin voted for the bill. When we look at the American Jobs Plan and Moody's Investments has said that the American Jobs Plan is the infrastructure bill. They said that that bill is going to create 2.7 million jobs. 68% of West Virginians support Joe Biden's American Jobs Plan, the infrastructure bill. For the People Act, 79% of West Virginians polled support the For the People Act. Donald Trump won West Virginia in 2016 and 2020 by about 40 points. But they said, look, we know this bill is going to help us. Okay, Westbrook, regardless of race or what have you, regardless of whether the Republican or Democrat or, what or whatever, they say, look, we know this is going to help us. We're poor. We need help. And they know that Biden's plan is going to help them. So you have to ask Joe Manchin, well, your, your, own, your own people in West Virginia want, this, want these bills. So what are you talking about? All right. Let's go back to... Um, I'm going to go back to this article here from NBC News. Uh, let's go back to the clip from uh, the Black News Channel, uh, Dr. Mark Lamont Hill. The thing was about this uh, constitutional abstraction called states' rights. Uh, and in order to absolve the United States of its racial sin, we then have to create this ultimate fantasy uh, version of the past. Uh, what W.E.B. Du Bois referred to as the propaganda of history. Uh, and so it has no bearing on what actually happened in the past. It's just a version of history that is politically useful for maintenance of white supremacy. And that's what we're seeing here. Somebody's going to say, why are y'all making a big deal about this? They still made her an offer as a practice professor. They gave her a five-year contract. You know, I don't have uh, a guaranteed job in my career why is this tenure thing a big deal? What do you say to those people? Yeah, I understand that. I understand why people would think that um, and why people would raise that question. But here's why it's important. Uh, there are uh, professors who are doing the work. When we say that we want the real history and we want to teach the truth, that requires scholarship. And that requires people going out and digging up things that people don't want to, to know, things that people want to keep buried. And tenure is meant to protect the scholars who are doing this work. If you want your children to learn the accurate story of the past, uh, people are always asking me, do you teach the real black history? Well, the people who produce the real black history need the protection of tenure. And the effect of this may not be on Nicole Hannah-Jones. It may be on dozens or hundreds of younger scholars 
who don't have tenure, who will be going up for tenure, and who now are afraid that by doing their very important, diligent work, they will be liable to have their career damaged in ways that may take years to recover from. Before you go, let me ask you one more question. I was talking about this right before you came on. There's a way that the right has been so outraged about cancel culture. There's some irony here. I mean, it seems to me that this is evidence that perhaps they're the ones doing the canceling. It's always been the case, though. That has always been the case. You know, when we have seen the attempt to shout down people in public uh, for pointing out the inconvenient truths of American history, uh, that wasn't us. Uh, and what they are reacting to when they're talking about cancel culture uh, is the mere emergence of people who can now, through social media, have a counter uh, voice, can now uh, argue back. Uh, but they've been doing this uh, since the time immemorial. You remember SpongeBob SquarePants when they went after him? Uh, they're all sorts of inanimate yeah. objects, ideas, uh, fictional characters that the, the right has a list of that they've gone after themselves. Uh, and so the idea of cancel culture, which is a term that I never use, but the idea of it existing uh, and being a, solely in the province of people on the left is, is laughable. Wow. William Jelani Cobb, thank you for joining me, and thank you for lending your insights on this. Okay. All right, pause it there. Okay, that's from May 20th, uh, 2021, Black News Channel, Dr. Mark Lamont Hill. Okay, so uh, those watching on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and my YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotel, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. Keep watching. We're going to keep broadcasting for a few more minutes. We'll talk about an update here. We'll talk about Dr. Lisa Jones, a chemist at University of Maryland, who's turned down a, a professorship at UNC Chapel Hill because of the mistreatment of uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Uh, if you like this type of information, also, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN Show, uh, through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN Show, through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN Show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN Show. Uh, when you do it to Cash App, be sure to type in dollar sign the AHN Show, S-H-O-W. We have the graphic up here. These other ones are the fake uh, Cash App, uh, the fake African History Network Cash App accounts. I've already reported them to uh, uh, Cash App. Um, remember, right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win Wakanda forever. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. So uh, you can support us through Cash App or through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Uh, this also will help me get back to and from uh, Atlanta for because uh, I'll be in Atlanta three days for the um, Juneteenth Festival. I'll be speaking there. The uh, ninth annual Juneteenth Festival at uh, Centennial Olympic Park, June 18th through the 19th, June 18th through the 20th. Be sure to register for the uh, my Saturday online course, um, 10 week uh, online course, Ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach in school. So we deal with uh, thousands of years of history and we deal with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. So our guest speaker, uh, Saturday, June 12th, is going to be none other than Dr. David M. Hotep, author of the book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. You know, I've interviewed him a number of times, but this will be he'll be speaking in our online class. 
Uh, he's going to do, we have a slide presentation for you also, and he's going to deal with the evidence of an African presence in this land dating back at least 51,700 years and in South America at least 56,000 years ago. Um, so the class is a 10-week online course that I teach. Uh, a few weeks ago, our guest speaker was archaeologist Nubia Warford. She's an African-American female archaeologist. She did, she did a fantastic presentation on um, ancient, uh, the origins of ancient Kush and the African queens of antiquity, the origins of ancient Kush and the African queens of antiquity. So I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips. It's interactive. Uh, you see me. I can't see you, but you, we have a live chat so you can ask questions in class also. So if you go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, right on the home page, uh, when you scroll down, we have the information for the online course. And I added an extra week because um, we need 10 weeks this time. We have Dr. David M. Hotep speaking. Uh, so when you scroll down, you'll see the flyer and the information here. Click on register here. It takes you to the next page. And uh, click on enroll. All right. And as soon as you register, you can start watching the uh, content. You can watch this past Saturday's class. We do the class live. All the sessions are recorded. You can go back and watch them over and over again. You'll still have access to the course as well. Because, uh, even after the course is over, with, you'll still have access. OK. Uh, so we posted the link here. You can register for that and start watching the content. All right, I want to go to this uh, article here from uh, 11 ABC News uh, in um, North Carolina. This deals with the update to this story. And they talk about an African-American female chemist from the University of Maryland named Dr. Lisa Jones, who has uh, refused uh, a professorship at um, at UNC because of the mistreatment of Nicole Hannah Jones. Uh, Dr. Lisa Jones is a uh, salt, is a highly sought after uh, professor, and she's turned down a faculty position at North Carolina's flagship university because of the ongoing controversy with uh, journalist Nicole Hannah Jones. Uh, Black America Web also has a uh, article dealing with. Uh, this story and Nicole Hannah Jones did a tweet uh, in support of uh, Dr. Lisa Jones. Uh, UNC loses out on leading uh, black chemist after Nicole Hannah Jones tenure debacle as UNC continues to process the national blowback for denying tenure to award-winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, an African-American professor and highly sought uh, chemist, declined a position with the university. There was a uh, tweet here from, let me scroll down here. Okay, we have a letter. There's a tweet here from uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ida Bay Wales on uh, Twitter. Let me see. Let's pull this up. Let me pull up this tweet. Uh, 
Uh, let's see here. Okay, let's go to this tweet. Let me flip over. We have it up. Okay, so Nicole Hannah-Jones tweeted uh, on June 2nd, I've never met this sister, Dr. Lisa Jones, but the solidarity shown me by black women in particular during this crucible is something I will never forget. And um, okay, it's the letter here uh, that I think this is the letter that uh, Lisa Jones wrote uh, to UNC. All right, let me, I want to go uh, to this clip here from uh, NBC, uh, I mean, 11 ABC uh, News. Just a second here. All right, so Eyewitness News learned another high-level sought-after professor has turned down uh, a faculty position at North Carolina's flagship university because of the ongoing controversy with journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones. Uh, Dr. Lisa Jones, a chemist at the University of Maryland, a chemist at the University of Maryland said in a statement that even though she hasn't met Nicole Hannah-Jones, she stands in solidarity with her. She said, uh, I stand in solidarity with her and could, and could not in good conscience accept a position at UNC. This situation is indicative of a broader issue within academia where faculty of color face several obstacles and are less likely to gain tenure, okay? Uh, let me see here, I'm trying to start this from the beginning. Now, uh, Friday was supposedly the drop dead day for UNC to reconsider the tenure status of Nicole Hannah-Jones or face a lawsuit. See, one professor here told me this whole situation has been stressful. It's taken away from their true academic mission. This is where learning that Ms. Hannah-Jones has offers from several other institutions, academic institutions, those positions come with tenure, and we're also hearing that the Board of Trustees tonight continues to consider her fate. It's a debate no professor wants its university to be involved in, not Deb Icutt. He's an associate professor at the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and has been since 1995. The school thrown into a frenzy for the last month over the fate of alum and journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones. This should be a plain and simple hire, and we can get on with our business of teaching. Tonight was supposedly the drop-dead date for UNC to reconsider the tenure status of Hannah Jones or face a lawsuit. UNC saying, quote, they've responded to a letter from the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund regarding Nicole Hannah Jones's employment. We look forward to continued dialogue with her counsel. No university or no faculty or student at any university want their universities to go through a federal lawsuit once you can avoid it. Her case rippling down the faculty as University of Maryland chemist Dr. Lisa Jones decided not to take a job in Chapel Hill because of what's happened to Miss Hannah Jones. Quote, the situation is indicative of a broader issue within academia 
where faculty of color face several obstacles and are less likely to gain tenure. 36 faculty members signed on to that statement saying that they expressed that concern that this was the dire repercussions of what is happening. As far as Professor Icutt knows, Ms. Hannah Jones is still coming to the university on July 1st. She agreed to a five-year contract which allows her to apply for tenure during that time. Whatever is decided, professors are asking for transparency, including the chair of the faculty, Dr. Mimi Chapman. She wrote an op-ed this week in the Daily Tar Heel. I've reached out to Ms. Hannah Jones. I've not heard back just yet. I've also filed public records requests with the university to get a bit more detail about the specifics of her contract. Now, you also might be wondering tonight, why tenure? Why is this battle over tenure so important? Not only, according to professors, does it ensure job security, but ensures academic freedom of teaching and ideas. Steve? Okay. So that is from 11 ABC News there in um, North Carolina. That is from June, June 4th, 2021. June 4th, 2021. Um, name of that piece is a highly sought after chemist turns down job at UNC uh, CH as Hannah Jones tenure dispute unfolds. Let me uh, flip over and show you this one. And blackamericaweb.com. Uh, has an article dealing with this as well. Highly sought after chemist turns down job at UNCCH as Hannah Jones tenure dispute unfolds. Okay, we'll post this link here. And then uh, blackamericaweb.com has an article dealing with this uh, topic also. Now, the article goes on to say, um, Okay, Joel Curran, Vice Chancellor for Communications for UNC, wrote on Friday saying the university, quote, responded to a letter from the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund regarding Nicole Hannah-Jones' employment. We look forward to continued dialogue with her counsel, end quote. Okay, you can read the rest of that. Um, now, in the piece from uh, Black America Web, It uh, has a comment here from Dr. Lisa Jones. Let's see here. This is reports show the chemistry department tried to lure Dr. Lisa Jones. Let me back up here. Um, citing the Board of Trustees treatment of Nicole Hannah-Jones, Professor Lisa Jones, Dr. Lisa Jones, removed her name from consideration. Inside Higher Education reported, uh, Dr. Lisa Jones found the decision to defer tenure for Nicole Hannah-Jones, quote unquote, disheartening, disheartening. She also took aim at UNC's alleged uh, commitment to diversity. She also took aim at UNC's alleged uh, commitment to diversity. And let me flip over here. She also took aim at uh, University of North Carolina's alleged commitment to diversity. She said, quote, it does not seem in line with a school 
that says it is interested in diversity, end quote, wrote Dr. Lisa Jones. Although I know this decision may not reflect the view of the school's faculty, I will say that I cannot see myself accepting a position at a university where this decision stands. Now, reports show the chemistry uh, department tried to lure Dr. Lisa Jones away from her current uh, position as associate professor of pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Maryland at Baltimore. The chemistry faculty alerted the UNC chancellor to the negative impact on faculty recruitment. Now, Professor Jones, quote, Professor Jones is a renowned bioanalytical chemist and would have bolstered the department's mission in research and education, end quote, wrote the chemistry faculty. Her recruitment also aligned with the myriad diversity initiatives on campus, not least the supporting themes in the blueprint for next, the supporting themes in the blueprint for next, end quote. Now, both highly qualified in their fields, not the Lisa Jones and Nicole Hannah Jones have would have added to the small poll of tenured black women professors at UNC. Investigative data, uh, investigative data journalist Ali Ingersoll found that out of 622 tenured professors at UNC, only eight were African-American women. Out of 622 tenured professors at UNC, only eight were African-American women. That's kind of interesting because African-American women um, have the highest percentage, they have the highest percentage um, uh, that are, they are the group that has the highest percentage enrolled in college. Let me put it like that. That was from a studies like 9%. That was from maybe eight, seven, eight years ago. The root.com has information on that also. Uh, so that's very interesting. UNC has only out of 622 um, tenured professors. Out of 622 tenured professors, only eight are African-American women. Now, investigative data journalist Ali Ingersoll also found that UNC, Duke, and North Carolina State University had little diversity within full-time tenured faculty. Little diversity within full-time tenured faculty. The tenured faculty at the three schools ranged from 74% to 79% white. North Carolina Central University, and, uh, which is an HBCU, had the greatest faculty diversity. North Carolina Central University, which is an HBCU, had the, had the uh, greatest faculty diversity. Now, let's see here. Um, Okay, now Dr. Lisa Jones in the statement also said, and let's go back to the screen share. 
Dr. Lisa Jones also said in a statement as a black woman who has built as a black woman who has built a nearly two decades long career. Well, this is Nicole Hannah Jones as a black woman who has built a nearly two decades long career in journalism. I believe Americans who research, study and publish works that expose uncomfortable truths about the past and present manifestations of racism in our society should be able to follow these pursuits without risk to their civil and constitutional rights, without risks, without risk to to their civil and constitutional rights. Uh, Nicole Hannah Jones said in a statement uh, last week directed at the controversy. Okay, so read the rest of this uh, article here. It's a good article from BlackAmericaWeb.com, which goes, which does a deeper dive than the piece from 11 ABC News. This deal, because Black America Web is an African-American owned and operated news source. That's why it's a deeper dive. Okay. Uh, UNC loses out on leading black chemist after Nicole Hannah-Jones tenure debacle. And this is by Anoa Changa for uh, blackamericaweb.com. All right, so check that out. Okay, I want to, uh, now some people ask, well, what is critical race theory? What is critical race theory? You know, we we talk about that often here um, on the African History Network show. And in the clip I played from Dr. Mark Lamont Hill, he referenced an interview that he did a few weeks ago and he interviewed Vernon Jones. Vernon Jones is running for governor of um, Georgia, the great state of Georgia. Now, Vernon Jones is a former Georgia state representative. He was a Democrat. He, he was a big Trump supporter when he was a Democrat. Then he became a Republican. He's African-American. He's a damn fool. He's an idiot. Uh, he's not going to be Stacey Abrams. But Vernon Jones said that if he becomes governor of Georgia, first thing he's going to do, or one of the first things he's going to do on his first day is an executive order banning the teaching of critical race theory. But when asked numerous times by Dr. Mark, by Dr. Mark Lamont Hill, explain to me what critical race theory is. Uh, Vernon Jones couldn't explain what critical race theory is, as as most uh, of these conservatives who are against critical race theory can't tell you what it is. They're against the talk about racism, systemic racism, white supremacy, slavery. They're against that. Okay, they don't want to be called racist. They're against dealing with that. They're against policies to deal with structural inequities and the correct decades of racism, et cetera. Um, critical race theory is a legal analysis on the premise that race is a social construct that is used to oppress people of color rather than a natural biological feature. So critical race theory is understanding how laws and policies are used to uh, oppress non-white people, especially African-Americans. OK, and how to better understand this and how to correct those laws and policies. OK, and, and how all this is tied into history. Uh, in the article here, in the actual interview that he did with uh, uh, Vernon Jones is in here as well. It's hilarious. Oh, it's a good, you watch that. It's a good time. You're going to laugh 
Vernon Jones just looks so ignorant. Now, uh, it looks at um, what uh, some information Britannica.com has about critical race theory. Critical race theory is a legal analysis on the premise that race is a social construct that is used to oppress people of color rather than a natural biological feature. So racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race, which comes out of the ideology of European white supremacy. Racism has nothing to do with not liking people or calling people racial epithets. Racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race, which comes out of the ideology of European white supremacy. Okay, how's everybody doing? We have Eric, we have Robert, we have Mateos, uh, just a few of the people watching, Sharon, Cynthia, uh, just a few of the people watching. So if we look at this one here, um, which one is that? Let me try to blow this up some more so you can see it. Okay, hopefully you can see that. Now, this is from uh, Britannica.com. So you can, uh, you, this is free to access, Britannica.com. Uh, critical race theorists hold that the law and legal institutions in the United States are inherently racist insofar as they function to create and maintain social, economic, and political inequalities between whites and non-whites, especially African-Americans. Now, critical race theory is not about just going around calling people racist, 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 and calling people names, things like this. No, it's understanding how laws and policies maldistribute wealth upon resources into the hands of non-white people and how these laws and policies oppress non-white people, especially African-Americans. So it's not about name calling. It's not about trying to make people feel guilty. It's about understanding how this works so you can correct these structural inequities. Republican-led states such as Tennessee and Iowa have proposed and passed bills that ban the teaching of critical race theory at public, public universities with legislators saying it's un-American. All right. Now, even though critical race theory is not taught in K through 12, it's not, it's usually not even taught in undergraduate school. It's usually taught in graduate schools and uh, law schools. Okay. It's a legal analysis. Now, the a uh, couple of days ago, we dealt with this story from um, Fox News. University professors hit back against opponents of critical race theory. You remember that story. Uh, university professors hit back against hit back against opponents of critical race theory. Okay, and. We'll bring up, up this article again. Let's see if we can bring up this article again here. Um, yeah. So we talked about this story uh, a few days ago. I think it was last Friday or something. Okay, there was a clip that I did not get a chance to get to. I had queued up. We ran out of time. Okay, this this story here from uh, Fox News. University professors hit back against opponents of critical race theory. And it um, in the in this clip here, you hear 
um, two of the leading scholars on critical race theory. Um, law professor Kendall Thomas, who's a law professor at Columbia University, and Marvin Lynn, a professor at Portland State University. Okay, so you can watch the uh, video uh, that they have here in this article uh, where they go through and explain it. There was a clip from uh, CNN because I, I was doing research on that on that show, on that day's show, and pulling together different content. And I had more content than we had time. Um, this is a about a five minute clip here. This is from May 18th, 2021. What critical race theory is really about? What critical race theory is really about? This is from uh, CNN. So we're going to go to this here in just a second. Let me cue this up. Um, as critical race theory becomes increasingly politicized and, uh, and attacked by Republicans, CNN's Jason Carroll explains what the concept is and what it isn't. And they speak with Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a pioneer in uh, critical race theory and who actually coined the term critical race theory. Let's go to this clip. Okay, we'll cue that up. Stand by. Can you tell me what critical race theory is? Yeah. Critical race theory? Critical race theory. No. No, no, no. I can guess. Guessing or not, across the country, a number of politicians are getting it wrong. Critical race theory is a Marxist doc that rejects the vision of Martin Luther King Jr. Absolutely false. It's basically teaching kids to hate our country and to hate each other based on race. False and slanderous. Meet professor and scholar Kimberly Crenshaw. Crenshaw is one of the founders of critical race theory, which she helped develop in the late 1980s. In short, critical race theory is an approach based on the idea that the history of white supremacy still has a very real and lasting impact on our society and institutions today. Critical race theory just says, let's pay attention to what has happened in this country and how what has happened in this country is continuing to create differential outcomes so we can become that country that we say we are. So critical race theory is not anti-patriotic. In fact, it is more patriotic than those who are opposed to it because we believe in the 13th and the 14th and the 15th Amendment. We believe in the promises of equality and we know we can't get there if we can't confront and talk honestly about inequality. Critical race theory is not a doctrine. It's not a manuscript. One way of describing it is looking with a critical eye at race and institutions. Let's take an example from history. The Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. A critical race theorist would note that slavery persisted for almost 100 years after those words were written, and it was more than a century before women got the right to vote. So why is the term causing such a stir in conservative political circles today? This left-wing nonsense that suggests that any race is inherently inferior or racist or... Op okay, so this, is, this idiot that you're listening to right now, this is uh, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, that dumbass. Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, okay, Republican, needs to be voted out of office. This is, this is who you're listening to right now.
uh, on Fox News, of course. Impressive. Opponents are concerned critical race theory. Let me, let me is back this up a little bit. That any race is inherently inferior or racist or oppressive. Opponents are concerned critical race theory is or will be forced on students. Supporters say that critical race theory is not based on the view of this race is good, this race is bad. Supporters also say in the wake of protests and calls for racial equality in the past year, those unnerved by it are now using critical race theory as a catch-all term for everything related to race, politics, and education in this country. So says Princeton professor Imani Perry. I think this is the sort of post-Trump era um, uh, way of inciting anxiety, fear, and actually trying to sort of elicit a, a, a hostility towards the progress that I think we've begun to make in the, just the last couple of months. To date, at least eight states have taken steps to ban topics surrounding critical race theory without naming it, including Oklahoma. We cannot revert to 100-year-old thinking that a person is any less valuable or inherently racist by the color of their skin. To be clear, critical race theory does not say someone is racist because of the color of their skin. And it does not say anyone should be ashamed of themselves because of the color of their skin. Still, some parents who hear the term are speaking out. Okay, so they were talking about Oklahoma. That was the governor of Oklahoma, okay, who, who signed a law banning uh, 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 Kevin Stitt, Republican governor of Oklahoma, governor of Oklahoma signed a bill banning uh, teaching a critical race theory, et cetera. Now, he said they can still teach about um, the Tulsa race massacre, but you have to have an analysis of white supremacy racism to understand and properly teach the Tulsa race massacre. And, it, it, you know, we talked about this here on this show, because if you uh, if we go back and look at uh, which article this one right here from um, NBC News. This article here dealing with uh, little Kevin's uh, bill that uh, he signed in the law, passed the state legislature. Teachers worry Oklahoma's ban on systemic racism lessons could put jobs at risk. Teachers worry Oklahoma's ban on systemic racism lessons could put jobs at risk. Oklahoma's new law which does not specify consequences for teachers who violate it, is one of many across the country targeting the study of racism's legacy. Now, so today it's about 20 states that have banned critical race theory or uh, different things like this, attacking the 1619 Project. This article here is from May 25th, 2021. Okay, read this article uh, also. Uh, we've talked about that here on this show. Teachers worry Oklahoma's ban on systemic racism lessons could put jobs at risk. Let's go back to this clip uh, quickly here from uh, CNN. Let me back this up. Critical race theory does not say someone is racist because of the color of their skin. And it does not say anyone should be ashamed of themselves because of the color of their skin. Still, some parents who hear the term are speaking out at school board meetings. Just because I do not want critical race theory taught to my children in school does not mean that I'm a racist, damn it. But 
Crenshaw says the theory is not about calling individuals racist, but looking at racism still ingrained in American institutions. And she says we have to talk about it. If the censoring of all conversation about racism is called racism, that's what this move is really about. It's really not about a theory. It's really not about what's in people's hearts. It's about an effort to shut down all conversation about the sources and the reproduction of racial inequality. Jason Carroll, CNN, New York. So, so as, as Dr. Jelani Cobb said in the interview with uh, uh, Dr. Mark Lamont Hill, um, see, white people for so long have had the power to just be able to shut down these conversations, right? And now they find that they can't do that as as easily because of social media, et cetera. Now they, they find they can't do that. And what, what, what many white people want, not all of them, of course, not all of them. I mean, there are a lot of white people who are out protesting um, in summer of 2020 uh, regarding the killing of George Floyd and, and, and others and things like this, right? So I'm not talking about all white people, but uh, many white people want African-Americans to suffer in silence. See, this is what this, this is what this is about. Many, many of them want African Americans to just suffer in silence. They don't want to hear about it. Okay. And that, that dealt with a lot of the blowback, uh, that Colin Kaepernick and other players in the NFL got for taking the knee, protesting silently. They didn't even want that. And, and, and so you had people attacking them and, and Donald Trump attacking them, et cetera, uh, for protesting silently against racism and police brutality and white supremacy, things like this, taking the knee during the national anthem. Now, Donald Trump doesn't know the words to the national anthem. Donald Trump's one of the biggest traitors in the history of this country. Okay. So, uh, and also taking the knee is a sign of respect in the military. That's where taking the knee came from. Comes from the military. Uh, Nate Boyer, um, who's a former NFL player and uh, former Green Beret, uh, met with Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed and gave them the idea of taking the knee as opposed to sitting on the bench uh, to show. Uh, so it wouldn't it, it, because taking a knee comes from the military as a sign of respect. So as a way to try to refocus attention on what the what their actual cause was, they switched from sitting on the bench during the national anthem to taking a knee. Okay. So check out this clip here. We just posted it, posted it from um, CNN. Uh, naming this clip here. This is from May 18th, 2021. What critical race theory is really about? What critical race theory is really about? This is from, uh, from CNN. And that was uh, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw that you heard in that clip. All right, I want to go to this last story here. Uh, this is dealing with uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. Okay, we'll go to this here in just a second. Also, if you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show. Do cash app, dollar sign, the AHN show. Do cash app also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. PayPal.me forward slash the AHN show. Um, so, so keep, 
keep doing the research. We're here six days a week, Monday through Friday, 11 p.m. to 12 midnight Eastern Standard Time, Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, you see our actual cash app tag is dollar sign the AHN show. It's H-O-W. Uh, these other ones are the fake ones. Okay. So if you donated money to the fake accounts, uh, let uh, cash app know there's an option in your app. Uh, click on problem with payment and follow the prompts and let them know you send it to the fake uh, cash app account. And that you're trying to send it to ours, dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W. Uh, mine says uh, Michael, and it shows my picture there. When you type in dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W. I've already, already reported the fake ones to um, Cash App. I'm just waiting for everything to take its course. Okay. And then also, you can still register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays. 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school. Okay, we deal with thousands of years of history and we deal with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. Uh, this is a 10-week online course that I teach. And we do the classes live. All the sessions are recorded. So you can go back and watch it over and over again. Our guest speaker uh, for... Our next class, Saturday, June 12th, will be Dr. David M. Hotep, author of the book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. Author of the book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. He'll talk about the premise of his book, the uh, African presence in the Americas, going back tens of thousands of years. And he'll deal with um, some information in his new book also. We got some slides that we'll show you as well. So it's a Saturday, June 12, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Okay. Um, here is a clip of, uh, do we have this clip here? Hold on. We'll go to Fan Lou Hamer in just a second. Um, Dr. David M. Hotel was interviewed in 2011 on WKRP in Cincinnati, Channel 5. If you're old enough to remember the TV show from the late 70s and early 80s, WKRP in Cincinnati, it really is a WKRP in Cincinnati. And he talked about the premise of his, of his book. Um, I want to pull this up here. I want to go to this clip. Because everybody's not familiar with this information. This is why... Even though 1619 did happen, it's problematic and grossly historically accurate when we, perpet when we perpetuate this myth that African people first came to this land in 1619. We, we, were here, we, we were here before anybody else was here in this land. Okay, uh, let's go to this clip here. Okay, we learned a lot in, high, in school about 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and all that stuff. But you know what? There were Africans before Columbus, and we've got Dr. David Imhotep to tell us his history lesson that we need to know. Welcome, Dr. Imhotep. And I should say, you have a Ph.D. in ancient African history. That's correct. And that's, and that's kind of unusual. Yes, it is. Yeah. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Yeah, how did you get interested in, in uh, this area? Uh, it was part of my dissertation uh, led this way, but I could not um, vary, vary 
to a, another subject when my other subject is here. So I said, later on, I will write something about that because it's not important in my dissertation at this moment. So that's why I did the book as soon as I finished my dissertation. Wow, and we should say, uh, we have a picture of the book too, and it's the first Americans were Africans, and we were talking about Dr. Ivan Van Cernema, because mm -hmm. I remember uh, back in the 1980s, my dad took me to hear him. He came here to Cincinnati, and his book was They Came Before Columbus, and he talked about mm -hmm. you know, how Africans were here. He had a lot of, I mean, great research information, and so it was just kind of eye-opening, but we, don't, we haven't heard a lot about that recently, so tell us how you, you got involved here. Well, I'm showing that uh, we, they, Africans not only came before Columbus, they came before the Indians. So you're going even farther back. I'm going farther back, at least 56,000 years old. Okay, now we've got a graphic up here about 130,000 years ago. Yeah, well, they sailed over here. And uh, when I lecture, people say, well, wait a minute, uh, humans weren't, weren't sailing, let alone they were, weren't boating uh, 130,000 years ago. And I beg to differ, uh, last year, New York Times uh, quoted the BBC, and uh, they wrote an article on how in Crete they have found a, a stone industry of stone tools going back to at least 130,000 years. And Crete wow. has been an island for in the middle of the, the Mediterranean for five million years. So they had to sail, and it was a continuous civilization, which means they were going back and forth. They knew how to navigate. So if they got to Crete 130,000 years ago, it's easy 70,000 years later that they could make it to the Americas at 56,000 years ago. Right. That's really, now how did you, how did you even get back to this research? I mean, this is just, you know, did you start by, by reading, they came before Columbus, and then you just, you expanded on that research? Yes, you see, that was 36 years ago, uh, Dr. Van Sertema's book came out, and this information is piled on for 36 years. So many different things, so many cutting-edge articles and, and things have been found since then. Yeah, and so and what, what, what's the reaction you get when you talk about how Africans came here even before Native Americans? People are amazed. They're shocked. They're shocked. First come shocks, and then they're smiling, and some frown, of course. <laughs> and then, you know, and, and what about the school systems? Because, you know, have we gotten this information to the, to the educational system? Not yet. The only book has only been out for a month, month and a half. And what kind, of, what kind of feedback are you getting, though, when you go around and talk about this? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're doing lectures around the country. Yeah, well, uh, I always bring my, my peer-reviewed articles okay. because my thesis, which is the same as my title, The First Americans Were Africans, is backed up by seven, soon to be eight, uh, peer-reviewed journal articles, which is the height of academia. Wow. And so you've got credibility. I mean, people can see this research. What do you think? Do you think this is going to change history at all? Well, for, for hundreds of years in Europe, uh, people thought the, the, the world was flat. And it took a while for them to get it, be able to say the world was round in order to, to, to go out there and, and navigate and see that it was indeed round. So it's going to take a little while for them to get around this, but it will happen. Well, and tell us a little bit about these Africans who, who came before the Indians, before Columbus. <laughs> Okay, uh, they came here, and uh, they were first. Uh, they ca came to uh, Tierra, uh, excuse me, um, uh, Pedro Furida, which is northeastern Brazil. And you'll okay. see that that's the closest point uh, from Africa to South America. And by canoe, a uh, a fellow, uh, a navigator uh, who was a doctor, wanted to prove that it could be done just in a canoe. And he set out in a canoe uh, with a supply ship, but it did not touch him. He had a canoe with no oars, no um, um, no paddle, no sail, nothing. He just sat there and the currents took him straight 
from Africa to here. You've really? heard about people, if you throw a bottle in, in the uh, water yeah. with a note, it'll come over. Right. Yes, there are rivers in the ocean, currents, and it took him 52 days only. So you put a large sail on that vessel, wow. and you get here in less than a month. So it's definitely possible. We know that. It's physically possible. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so what part of, of Africa were the Africans from who, who, who came to Brazil? Well, the DNA, uh, the genome, the um, genome project uh, found that the earliest ones, uh, the, the ones that they found in Tierra del Fuego, in the very tip of uh, South America in uh, 1874, 1876, uh, were the short Africans, the Khoisan, who t spoke with the clicks. Like, like that. The Gods Must Be Crazy did a, a movie on yeah, that. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. Yes. So they have About the, the Coca-Cola bottle yes. that fell in, yeah. Yes, they have the oldest DNA and the oldest language on the planet, and they were all over. Oh, wow. All over all three Americas, as now, well as now, Asia. Well, have they done any DNA tests in Brazil to see that? Yes, they have. The Genome Project went all around the world. There were 100,000 people participated. Wow. Taking DNA swabs. And so, so first we know that it's possible to get over here by, by canoe, and second of all, the DNA from that group of Africans is yes. in Brazil. The most important thing, not, not to forget to, to ask me, well, I, I will tell you that, where do the Native Americans come from? Well, we've always been taught that they came across the Bering Straits from Asia. This is true, but they did not come until 3000 B.C. There is no evidence of them coming before 3000 B.C. So for 53,000 years, there were nothing but Africans in North, Central, and South America. Wow. When they come over 3000 B.C., those two groups, the Africans and the Mongolians, get together, the Asians, get together, and their children are the Native Americans. Wow. This is why the Native Americans do not look Chinese. They are a little different than Chinese. Right. Oh, that's, you know what, I mean, we need to, we need to learn. It makes a lot of sense, yes. Dr. Imhotep, and we need to learn our history. All right, so that's a uh, clip. That was an interview from 2011. Dr. David Imhotep did. That's on YouTube. So you can check it out. The uh, name of that uh, clip, Dr. David Imhotep, PhD, is interviewed by Channel 5 TV WKRP in Cincinnati. That's on his uh, YouTube channel, actually. Okay, let me post the link here. And this is an article um, from face-to-faceafrica.com. Um, this is about the Khoisan, who have the, the oldest ethnic group, uh, Africa's oldest ethnic group. They have the oldest DNA on the planet. Africa's oldest ethnic group fights to keep ancestral land away from Amazon reach, away from Amazon.com, okay? This article is from uh, June 4th, 2021, June 4th, 2021, from uh, face-to-faceafrica.com. So check out this article. It talks about the Khoisan, K-H-O-I-S-A-N. Amazon is looking to build its new uh, African headquarters in Cape Town, South Africa, in a project that will take between three and five years However, the land on which the multi-billion dollar corporation seeks to put its edifice belongs to the local Khoisan people, reputed to be the oldest existing people in the world. Reputed to be the oldest existing people in the world. These are the Khoisan, the ancestors that I knew in the Twa, um, the short-statured Africans. These were originally the short-statured Africans. So read this article here. This is who... Dr. David M. Hotel was talking about in the uh, interview there, okay? 
um, and he deals with them in his book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. They were also the first uh, people in the Philippines as well. All right, so he'll be our guest speaker in, online, uh, in my online class on Saturday, June 12th, um, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So you can register for that, and we have it on the homepage of our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com also. All right, I want to go quickly here to this next story, and uh, we'll deal with this. We may talk about this some more on tomorrow's show because we're out of time here. Uh, this deals with Fannie Lou Hamer. So June 9th, 1963. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer was uh, Fannie Lou Hamer was beaten, dragged off of a bus and beaten. Okay, um, and I've talked about Fannie Lou Hamer before. I, I deal with her also in the online course that I teach: Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Maafa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Uh, let me see here. Can we? Let me pull this up. Just a second. Uh, so I deal with Fannie Lou Hamer in the uh, online uh, in the uh, lecture. I do ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Maafa. Understanding the I mean, uh, great African women in the history, the mothers of civilization. I deal with her in that uh, in that lecture that I do. So this comes from the Equal Justice Initiative. Equal Justice Initiative. Um, let me flip over to this here. June 9th, 1963. Fannie Lou Hamer uh, arrested and beaten in Winona, Mississippi. So on June 9th, uh, 1963, um, Fannie Lou Hamer and other civil rights activists were arrested in Winona, Mississippi, while returning from a voter registration workshop in South Carolina. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer and the other activists had been traveling in the white section of a Greyhound bus, despite threats from uh, the driver that he planned to notify local police at the next stop. And let's see, let me close this out here. Try to pull up a picture. All right, also blackpass.org has a good uh, article on Fannie Lou Hamer also. And she was a victim of forced sterilization uh, when she was young in, in Mississippi. Um, she was like the youngest of uh, 19 or 20 children. And she grew up on a uh, plantation. And when she registered to vote, she was fired from the plantation that she and her family worked on. Okay, let's pull this up here. Okay. 
All right, so uh, Fannie Lou Hamer and other civil rights activists have been traveling in the white section of a Greyhound bus despite threats from the driver that he planned to notify local police at the next stop when the, uh, when the bus arrived at the Winona uh, bus depot, the activists sat at the white-only lunch counter inside the bus terminal. Winona Police Chief uh, Thomas Herod, H-E-R-R-O-D, ordered the group to go to the colored side of the depot and arrested them when one of the activists tried to write down his patrol car license number. Okay, one of the activists tried to write down the uh, patrol, the license plate number of the patrol car, and uh, the, uh, he got arrested. Uh, in August, so when Winona Police Chief Thomas Harrod ordered the group to go to the colored side of the depot and arrested them, arrested the group, when one of uh, the activists tried to write down his patrol car license number. In August 1964, while testifying at the Democratic National Convention, to uh, urge party bosses to seat a group of African-American Mississippi voters as delegates, Fannie Lou Hamer recalled the abuse she endured that night at the county jail. She said, she said, it wasn't long before three white, white men came to my cell. She said, one of them was a state highway patrolman and he asked me where I was from. I told him Ruleville, and he said, we are going to check this, R-U-L-E-V-I-L-L. -L. They left my cell and it wasn't long before they came back. He said, uh, he, he said, quote, you are from Ruleville, all right. And he used a curse word and he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. Now, the, uh, the white officers then forced two African-American prisoners to brutally beat Fannie Lou Hamer with loaded blackjacks. She was nearly killed. As Fannie Lou Hamer regained consciousness, she overheard one of the white officers propose, quote, we could put them uh, SOBs in the in the big black river and nobody would ever find them. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer never fully recovered from the attack. She lost vision in one of her eyes and suffered permanent kidney damage, um, which contributed to her death in 1977 at the age of 59. Now, if you um, the piece from uh, BlackPass.org, the piece piece from BlackPass.org talks about uh, Fannie Lou Hamer said she um, was beaten. She, she was in the hospital for like thirty days, if I remember correctly, from uh, the piece from BlackPass.org, and she says she was beaten so badly her whole bar, her whole body was hard. Yeah, her whole body is direct coat. Body was hard. Let me pull this up here from um, um, blackpass.org. So let me back up a little bit here. In 1961, she was sterilized without her knowledge or consent by a white doctor as part of the state of Mississippi's plan to reduce the number of impoverished African-Americans in the state. This is known as eugenics. So we've talked about eugenics here on the show before. There were 31 uh, state-sponsored eugenics programs, about 31 uh, state-sponsored eugenics programs across the country uh, from about uh, the late 1920s into the 1970s, okay? 
uh, eugenics. And if you look at, there was, um, I have some articles on eugenics. Uh, North Carolina is uh, the state that was probably the first state to acknowledge their eugenics program. And they actually paid reparations uh, to the survivors, um, to the survivors, African-American and, and white survivors of eugenics. Uh, let's see. There was no comments. Okay, that's an earlier article on it. Um, let's see. There's a piece from NBC News here. I'm looking at what I have bookmarked. Uh, let's see. Okay. Not that one. Let me go to. Let me try to get them. More recent article here dealing with North Carolina. Okay, if we look at this article here from uh, ABC News. Dealing with uh, North Carolina's eugenics program. Uh, North Carolina to compensate victims of sterilization in 20th century eugenics program. State task force offers $50,000 a person as apology. This is from January 10th, 2012. It went through some challenges, but... It was eventually approved. Okay, so they they were uh, eventually uh, paid reparations. Uh, once again, as I said before, reparations is not specific to slavery. Some people just find out what reparations was in like the past couple of years, and they think reparations automatically means is related to slavery. No, it's not. Reparations means repairing the damage of a wrong that was done. It's not specific to slavery. The um, Survivors of the Tuskegee experiment of untreated syphilis in the Negro male um, because of the lawsuit of 1973 filed by uh, attorney Fred Gray, the uh, survivors in their uh, family received reparations. That ain't had nothing to do with slavery. So the eugenics, okay, and they voted the eugenics compensation task force. Uh, they deal with the history of eugenics. Okay, the state sterilized uh, the state of North Carolina sterilized more than 7,600 people in North Carolina from 1929 to 1974. One of many other states in misguided attempts to weed out criminals and the mentally disabled. This is the whole eugenics movement. Eugenics means good genes. Eugenics was founded in about 1883, if I remember correctly, by Sir Francis Galton, who was a cousin of Charles Darwin. Um, and let me see, we have other articles on eugenics. Uh, I'll give you one other here. So she was, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer was a victim of the eugenics 
program, the state-sponsored eugenics program there in Mississippi. And let's see if we have... Um, Uh, there's an article from AtlantaBlackStar.com that deals with 10 disturbing facts African-Americans should know about eugenics. 10 disturbing facts African-Americans should know about eugenics. And it, it should have this uh, one dealing with uh, Francis Galton. Francis Galton is the uh, founder of eugenics. Okay, this is Britannica.com. I'm looking at my, my bookmarks on this. Um, Francis Galton, yeah, 1883, I was correct. Okay, I was going for memory on that. I was straight going for Okay, we should be back. All right, so I was looking at, um, were you all able to see this here, dealing with North Carolina? Okay, this is from ABC News. Um, North Carolina to compensate victims of sterilization and 20th century eugenics program. This is from January 10th, 2012. January 10th, 2012. And if you scroll down, it talks about uh, this, uh, the state of North Carolina. The state sterilized more than 7,600 people in North Carolina from 1929 to 1974. One of many other states in misguided attempts to weed out criminals and the mentally disabled. Okay. Um, the eugenics program and they talk, they talk about Elaine Riddick in here. Okay. You, you, Elaine Riddick is also in the documentary, my alpha 21, 21st century black genocide. Uh, so they talk about Elaine Riddick. She was a victim of the North Carolina state, state sponsored, uh, state sponsored eugenics program. If we look at this here from, uh, Britannica.com encyclopedia Britannica, on eugenics. It says, let's look at this. Okay, eugenics. Now, eugenics means good genes, good genes. And this was an attempt by white supremacists to, to rid um, uh, people who they felt were feeble-minded, uh, predisposed to criminality, different things like this. Originally, it wasn't specifically targeting African-Americans. They were targeting poor African-Americans and poor white people. Over time, it started 
they started targeting African-Americans more. Okay. But they were sterilizing poor white people also. Uh, the term eugenics was coined in 1883 by British explorer and natural scientist Francis Galton, who influenced by Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection, advocated a system that would allow, quote, the most suitable, uh, the most suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable, end quote. The, the most suitable races, okay, his theory advocated a system that would allow, quote, the most suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable, end quote. Social Darwinism, the popular theory in the late 19th century, uh, that life for humans and society was ruled by, quote, survival of the fittest, end quote, helped advance eugenics into serious scientific study in the 1900s. Now, um, Francis Galton was a cousin of Charles Darwin. Uh, by World War I, many scientific authorities and political leaders uh, supported eugenics. However, it ultimately failed as a science in the 1930s and 1940s when the assumptions of eugenesis became heavily criticized uh, and the Nazis used eugenics to support the extermination of entire races. Because the uh, Adolf Hitler is studying what's taking place in the U.S. The Nuremberg laws are based upon the segregation laws here in this country, but the Nuremberg laws went even further. And the sterilization program that they instituted in Nazi Germany is based upon the sterilization program they had here based upon eugenics. Okay, what is eugenics? All right, so however it ultimately failed, this is why it's important to understand history. This tell, history tells you what happened in the past and how you got to where you are now. It, uh, uh, you know, we have to learn from history, from successes, from failures, what not to let happen again. Those that don't know history are destined to repeat it. And uh, uh, people's history and culture gives them their foundation, especially African history, gives us our foundation, our values, our interests, and our principles. It gives us a cultural paradigm we see reality through. It gives us our, our self-esteem, our self-development, our self-worth. But a people's history and culture teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past in the present and the future to meet the needs of the community. How it alter, uh, uh, eugenics, uh, so by World War I, 1914, 1918, by World War I, many scientific authorities and political leaders supported eugenics. However, it ultimately failed as a science in the 1930s and 40s when the assumptions of eugenesis became heavily criticized and the Nazis used eugenics to support the extermination of entire races. And they were doing, they were sterilizing and killing Afro-Germans also, the, the Nazis. They were killing Afro-Germans as well. Okay, so read the rest of this here. This is from Britannica.com, Encyclopedia Britannica, eugenics. Okay, here's the background information on eugenics. All right. 
So uh, let's continue here very quickly now to get out of here. Okay, uh, we were looking at um, blackpass.org on Fannie Lou Hamer. So several pivotal uh, moments in Fannie Lou Hamer's life uh, uh, became public reminders that America's vision of democracy was incongruent with its horrifying reality. In 1961, Fannie Lou Hamer was sterilized without her knowledge or consent by a white doctor as part of the state of Mississippi's plan to reduce the number of impoverished African-Americans in the state. On August 23rd, 1962, after hearing a sermon by Reverend James Bevel, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer volunteered to become an organizer for the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee, SNCC, to help African-American Mississippians register to vote. While she was traveling by bus on June 3rd, 1963, state law enforcement officers in Winona, Mississippi, took Fannie Lou Hamer and fellow activists to Montgomery County Jail, where they were beaten mercilessly. Uh, she testified that she was beaten. She was beaten until her body was hard, quote unquote, body was hard. She suffered a blood clot, sustained damage to her kidney and required a month to recover from the assault. Fannie Lou Hamer was not intimidated. And after her recovery returned to the effort to register and organize African-American voters. In 1904, Fannie Lou Hamer became one of the state-wide leaders in the Freedom Summer Campaign, which brought hundreds of volunteers from across the nation to Mississippi to help with voter registration. It was during that summer campaign that three civil rights workers, uh, uh, James Cheney, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman were killed by anti-black terrorists. It was the Ku Klux Klan that killed them. That was June 21st, 1964. They were killed. And uh, uh, was a member, the sheriff was a member of the Klan and tipped the Klan off to which direction that they went in after he released them from, from jail. Okay? That was June 21st, 1964. All right. So I know blackpass.org said anti-black terrorists, but this was the Klan that killed them. Let me pull this back up here. Okay, and the caption back up. And we'll talk about Fannie Lou Hamer some more. Um, in some subsequent shows. All right, so lawyers are going back to EJI.org. Um, so Fannie Lou Hamer, the, the, the beating that she suffered um, led her to have permanent kidney damage, which contributed to her death in 1977 at age 59. Now, lawyers with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, filed uh, a lawsuit against the Winona police who brutalized the activists, but an all-white jury acquitted them, of course. An all-white jury acquitted them. Uh, they, they probably said the black people uh, jumped up and beat themselves. That's probably what they said. Despite the trauma she experienced, Fannie Lou Hamer returned to Mississippi to continue organizing uh, voter registration drives and remain active 
in civil rights uh, causes until her death. Okay, so read this piece here from uh, EJI.org. Fannie Lou Hamer arrested and beaten in Winona, Mississippi. All right, look, we, hey, we have to get out of here. 